You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello and welcome to The Investor Way with myself, John McEwen, and my co-host, Sam Ball. This week on The Investor Way, we have Morrison's, Team 17, Next, Howden's, AG Bar and Jameer for our US company. Sam, what should we start with? Should we start with Morrison's? Okay, so Morrison's, Britain's fourth largest supermarket, had their full year results out earlier in March. And here are some of the highlights. Total revenue, excluding fuel, rose 8.9% to £15 billion. On a like-for-like basis, that was up 8.6%. Particularly strong quarters in the second and fourth. Total sales from in-store and online were 14.2 million, and they accounted for 93.9% of total revenue, excluding fuel. And despite the higher sales, underlying pre-tax profit fell 50.7% to 201 million. That was reflective of the higher than expected COVID-related costs, cafe closures, and weaker trading on the fresh food counters and the food-to-go side, along with fuel excluding the repayment of the government business rate relief, underlying pre-tax profit would have been 431 million. The direct COVID costs totaled 290 million and about 99 million of that being from the higher staffing costs, but reassuringly now absence levels are starting to return to normal levels. Net debt, including leases, stood at 3.2 billion, that compared with 2.5 billion in the previous year and it's equivalent to 2.4 times cash profits. Final dividend payment of 5.1p takes full year payment to 7.1p a share, and that's up 5.6% from 2019, but there'll be no special dividend. The shares currently yield approximately 3.9% at the current share price of £1.84. So I suppose on the positive side of the Morrison story, they've been improving the market share, Online sales have tripled and their capacity is up fivefold. And unlike rivals such as Tesco's, there's much more room for growth in the online space. And they've got some interesting relationships developing with Amazon. And they're currently supplying the recently opened Amazon grocery store. And they've also been focusing and bulking up on the wholesale side of the business with a deal with McCall's. And that's similar but not quite the same to what Tesco had done with Booker. And the other, another positive thing that not unique to Morrison's, but one thing they have going for it is that they own most of their stores rather than leasing it. So they don't have the sort of the expense of the leases and they're much more domestically focused. They haven't made attempts to go into foreign markets like Tesco's did, which was a costly mistake for that business. The downsides, I suppose, Sam, with both with all the supermarkets, are that market the margins are very tight, and it's a highly competitive industry. In terms of the current valuation of Morrison's, it's got a market cap of four point three billion, at price to earnings of twelve point seven, which compares with a historical av- or ten year average of fourteen point one. What are your thoughts on Morrison's and these full year results? I thought they were decent. I like the business. So we actually covered the Q4 trading statement last time. So there weren't any real surprises for us in these results. The P is actually currently trading at a P of 30, but then 
they've adjusted that to exclude the rates that they're paying, which then brings it down to the 12.7. But yeah, I think 12.7 compared to the 14.1 average, I think it's quite a, a good price for a good business. I thought the online numbers were very good. I think the, the wholesaling business adds an interesting dynamic and so does the Amazon element if Amazon do start looking to grow. No, I, I do like the business and I like the valuation and I think it's I think it's very reasonably valued. What about you? Yeah, no, I'd, I'd largely agree with you. And I think it's certainly on my watch list. I do already own a supermarket. So that's possibly the only thing putting me off that I've already sort of got exposed to the sector. You do wonder whether it's going to be a target of an acquisition, possibly by a company like Amazon. Yeah, especially if you look at what they do with Whole Foods in the US. Exactly. And it's not, like you say, it's not really that expensive either. No, especially for the, for the numbers that it's putting up. I know that yeah. it's, it is a supermarket, so you're not going to have that every year, but no. it is a quality business. If you didn't already own Tesco, which of the two yeah. do you think you'd prefer? I think I might be tempted by Morrison's, you know, it, possibly on just on the valuation. I know that's not purely what you should choose a company on, but that would probably just tip me maybe at the moment. The current prices are both of them. What about you? I'd be inclined to agree with you. So we did actually discuss this off air. And I think overall, I, I probably, I think Tesco is a slightly better business, although Morrison's is a very good business. And the fact that Tesco are the market leader as well. I think if you mm. get the market leader, it probably makes more sense to you unless there's a reason you're picking something else. But mm. based on valuations, Morrison's is much cheaper. I don't think the difference in the quality of the business is justifies the difference in the valuations. No, fair enough. Fair so I think enough. I think it's Tesco at P from memory, I think it's about twenty. I'll just Google it. Yeah, the problem is when you Google it, is that includes includes the sale of the tie business now, doesn't it? So it'll give you a P of like ten or something. Uh, yeah. so we'd we'd have to work it out, which is too much effort for me. Should we go with twenty? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Do you worry about the margins in the supermarket industry that they're so you know they're they're really, really squeezed and the sort of prospect of price wars. I don't know, because that's not, it's not a new thing, is it? And like the discount retailers, like the Littles and the Aldi, they've, they've been around really since about 2008 now in like a mm. significant way. Yeah. I guess you could say with the ISA brothers buying Asda, I think they've now started initiating price cuts. Mm, yeah, yeah, but yeah. Really, I mean, it's... I don't know, like, it's not the first time supermarkets have had price wars and they're still good businesses and the discount retailers have been around for about 12 years, 13 years now. And although they've taken a decent share of the market, I mean, certainly Morrison's and Tesco still look like very attractive businesses. Sainsbury's I don't think is as attractive, but I think that's not necessarily just because of that. What about you? Yeah. No, I suppose the thing is that it's probably reflected in the price that, you know, they were trading at much higher multiples back, you know, pre Aldi and Lidl coming and disrupting the market. So I think it's probably reflective. I think the valuations are very, particularly for Morrison's, I think it's very reasonable. Yeah. 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 I think Sainsbury's was like a PE of like nine when we last looked at it, but I think that's yeah, the worst business. Yeah. 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 Fine. So next on the list, we've got Team 17. Do you yes. want to explain what Team 17 is, Sam? Are you familiar with them at all? 
I used to play Worms, so... Yeah, so, yeah, so they're the game developer. And it's actually, Worms is actually the only one of their games that I recognise, but... It's probably the only one I'll recognise as well, but... Yeah, this is just from the company's own about page. The company is focused on premium rather than free-to-play games and creates and publishes titles for the PC, console, mobile and tablet gaming markets. Alongside developing the company's own games in-house, Team 17 partners with independent developers across the globe to add value to their games in all areas of development and production, alongside bringing them to markets across multiple platforms for fixed percentage royalties. Since foundation in 1990, Team 17 has launched over 100 games, including the iconic Worms, Overcooked and Escapist franchises, as well as Ukulele, Yoku's Island Express, My Time at Porsche, Hell Let Loose and Blasphemous, making Team 17 one of the most prolific developers and partners of games for the indie market. Over 90% of the group's revenue is generated from digital sales, which facilitates a high level of control over pricing and game lifecycle management. With minimal additional development costs post-launch, Team 17 has released over 100 premium games during its history, including the highly successful Worms franchise, which has continued to generate approximately 5 million in annual revenue between 2009 and 2019. Due to the group's diverse portfolio of owned and third-party IP, coupled with its approach to lifecycle management, a substantial portion of revenue has been generated from back catalogue sales and a material proportion of new releases and new titles from existing franchises, including Overcooked 2, The Survivalists and Worms Rumble. So Team 17 is an AIM-listed company and they listed, they only listed a few years ago actually, so they've, they've been listed for under three years and they've come out with their full year results. So revenue for the year was up 34% to 83 million. Gross profit was up 33% to 39 million, with the gross profit margin decreasing 1% to 47%. And the main profit metric they've given is adjusted EBITDA, which is up 36% to 30.1 million. They've got the income statement in the notes, but they've not actually included the net profit in the highlights. I don't actually have a huge issue with that because I think for adjusted, so adjusted EBITDA, the EBITDA is the earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortization. I actually think it may make more sense to use this metric in this specific case, because I think in reality, what will be happening is they'll include a depreciation expense for the, for the game. So for example, if they release a new Worms game, the, the, they might have to depreciate that over five years when actually they're going to be continuing to generate revenue for another five years after that. So as long as that's the reason, I don't actually have a huge issue of them using that metric because it probably does make sense, especially when they've said that a lot of the revenue does come from the back catalogue. Cash and cash equivalents was up 47% to 61.5 million and the basic earnings per share was up 32% to 17p. In the operational strategic highlights, they've highlighted that they've strengthened the portfolio of 12 titles launched in the year, providing new revenue lines, which include a record 10 new games released, supported by an increasing depth of back catalogue titles. They said they're approaching 400 digital revenue lines delivered across the whole portfolio. Two of the titles launched were on next generation consoles, which were Worms Rumble and Overcooked All You Can Eat. Highlights solid underlying back catalogue performance, making up 78% of revenues. First-party IP reached 21% of revenues, supported by two first-party titles launched in Q4. 
which said with the acquisition and integration of Yippie Entertainment Limited, establishing a second UK development studio based in Media City, Manchester, the team has now doubled in size and overall headcount has grown by 25% to 250. In January 2021, they completed the acquisition of all rights and assets for Golf With Your Friends, an existing third-party title to become a fully-owned IP for total consideration of 12 million. In the outlook, they've said that they have a solid and diverse pipeline of launches for 2021 and beyond, and they're well-positioned to continue to deliver on their growth plans. They said the year started well, and the expansion of both major new consoles and distribution platforms underpins management's optimism about the future of gaming, given its unique mixture of technology and entertainment. Debbie Bestwick, MBE, CEO of Team17, has commented, I'm delighted that our Teamsters and the wider Team17 family have pulled together in what has been a challenging 12 months for many. It's because of their hard work and creativity, along with that of our brilliant label partners, that we can report another record year of profitability. 2020 was a significant year for the gaming industry as a whole, as we saw the launch of both Sony and Microsoft's next-gen consoles. It's fantastic to see our titles being launched on both these platforms, and another generation of gamers will get to explore Team 17's gaming universes. Incredibly, our Worms franchise is now 25 years old, and in December we launched franchise's newest title, Worms Rumble, on PlayStation 5. While we have all been delighted to see how well the game has taken to this new platform, I know many gamers, myself included, will fondly remember Worms' first iteration, developed for the Commodore, Amiga, and released in 1995. No doubt that'll bring back some fond memories for you, John. (laughs) 2021 will be a very exciting year and busy year for Team 17, with more games signed to our label than any time in our history, and new IP launches to look forward to, including Rogue Heroes, King of the Seas, Narita Boy, Epic Chef, Super Magbot, Greek, Memories of Azur, Honey I Joined a Cult, and Hocko Life, with three new games still to be announced. Along these, Hell Let Loose is due to exit early access and launch on PlayStation 5 and Xbox S and S. Overcooked All You Can Eat will launch on Nintendo Switch, PS4, Xbox One, and PC. And Worms Rumble will launch on Xbox S and S, Xbox One, and Nintendo Switch. I look forward to updating our shareholders on our progress as the year goes on. In the market overview, they pointed out the the video games market saw unprecedented growth accelerated by a significant increase in demand for home entertainment during the COVID-19 pandemic. As a result of this positive tailwind, the overall market grew 19.6% to $174.9 billion. So their growth's about 30%. So they've gained market share in the past year. The market is now predicted to reach $217 billion by 2023, growing at 7.6% a year. Over the same period, the mobile gaming sector is expected to grow at 9.8% a year, whilst console and PC sectors are predicted to grow at 7.4% and 2.4% respectively. In terms of the valuation, the company trades at a market cap of $1.01 billion and a PE ratio of 42. The financials for, since it's gone public, first full year available is 31 December 2017, and it had... Revenue of 29.63 million. So that's increased to 82.97 million in the current year. Operating profit has increased from 8.93 million to 26.17 million in that period. And earnings per share has increased from 4.3p to 17p in that period. In terms of the share price, the shares are up 34% for the year of the past 12 months and 233% over the past two years. John, thoughts on Team 17? 
Yeah, well, I certainly enjoy playing worms and the numbers, the numbers are really impressive. I can't say I know anything about the industry. So probably that would hold me back actually investing, but it's, you know, the growth price to earnings of just over 40, I suppose it's priced in, but it's, it's impressive. And it looks like definitely a company to watch. And like, you know, like they said in, or drew, drew our attention to in the presentation, the growth on the mobile platforms as well, not just, you know, PCs that they might traditionally have been played on or the PS5. I think there's probably a lot, a, a lot of room there. Yeah, I can't decide what to make of it. I, I do like it. They are good numbers. But yeah, it, it looks it looks quite pricey. And I struggle to I struggle to look at it and say, well, I, I think they can grow to this much or this much. Because with indie games, like who's who's to say like indie games must be they must be operating like a smaller niche in the market. So for me, I'm, I'm the same as you. I, I wouldn't buy it, but I can see why someone else who knows a bit more about the industry possibly would. And I yeah, think I it's think an outrageous price. No, that's right. I think the, the difficulty is I just don't know about I I don't play many video games now yeah. and I just don't know enough about the industry. I don't know how strong these brands are. Obviously Worms is, yes, but the rest of them and the growth, I don't know. But certainly I'd, I'd like to think it would be the, the maybe the mobile gaming that mm. is the sort of the area. And it's Worms is the type of game that I could see playing on a smartphone. Oh, that worked quite well. Yeah, yeah big, big change from your Atari days, but... <laughs> I think I think the uh, for reference, I think the first Worms game I played was Worms Two, and it was on Windows ninety five. I think that might have been my first one actually. Okay, so so we played the same game. Probably yeah. There's another one. There's a, I don't know. There was a few other ones. They were all the same, weren't they? Was, uh... More yeah, more or less. I think you you know you might have different weapons and be able to unlock slightly different things, but it was. Essentially the same game. Which I can see is it working well on mobile, though. Yeah, all, yeah. I see it working less well on PS5. I don't really know what you'd be getting more than the basic worms. I, mean, I suppose I was really we were playing 2D worms rather than Yeah, I had, a, I had an Xbox. I can't remember what it was called, but I had one on Xbox, and that was, I think it was original Xbox. But that, that was like 3D. Yeah. I, I guess you could have it 3D, but yeah, it's still cartoons, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. I don't know how much the 3D actually enhances the Worms experience, but it's, I'm it's surprised a good game. It. I'm surprised that given that Worms is the only title there that I know, yeah. that it only does 5 million a year. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. So with revenue of 82 million, like Worms is not a significant proportion of it. So it must be quite a well-diversified business in that case. Yeah, titles. No, yeah, but you know, I don't think you, either of either of us are particularly into gaming or do no, that but when when they list their titles they do list worms first so i don't know if that's because it's the most iconic or you'd assume it is the mm. biggest but with 100 titles it's if worms is 5 million out of 82 million it must it must be quite yeah. well diversified across the other 99 as well yeah no you're right you're right probably an interesting one to follow though no yeah i do like it rel relatively speaking uh, a well smaller company listed on aim yeah well a billion market cap yeah, it continues to grow at thirty percent a year. It's, yeah, it's it's not it's it's not going to be a minnow for long. Someone could do well on it, but it won't be us. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So next, so next is probably a company that you will have heard of and that won't need much explanation. But they had their full year results, which were largely in line with the guidance given back in January. 
with total retail sales falling 48% to £955 million. And comparing the performance of stores on days when they were open, the full price sales fell 18%. Home, children's wear, sports, lounge and underwear grew full price sales by 3%. However, this was offset by weaker sales from other categories, including holiday and formal, with summer cancelled in 2020 and the working from home unsurprising really the retail park stores performed significantly better than the other locations lower sales offset cost savings which included a much smaller spend on stock so there's an operating loss of 206 million compared with a profit of 164 million back in 2019 the store estate reduced by seven stores although floor space overall increased and the average length of store leases stood at five and a half years Online sales reached 2.4 billion, full year sales were up 34% and there were fewer returns as a result of COVID. Also as a result of COVID, they had a reduced marketing spend and catalogue costs helped margins with operating profits rising 18% to 472.1 million in that division. The next finance business saw a 7% decrease in interest income to 250 million with the group increasing its bad debt provision for unpaid loans by 20 million pounds the company also managed to generate 521 million of surplus cash before shareholder distributions compared with 498 million the previous year this was despite lower profits and a reflection of the amount of money owed by customers and the leaseback of the head office and warehouse complex net Debt fell 502 million to 610 million. And Next also announced that it would increase its five year capital expenditure budget to around 90 million to accelerate warehouse and systems development in response to the increased online demand. And it's expecting the online warehouse capacity to be increased by 80% come 2025. And as a side note, Next have increased their pre-tax profit guidance for the current financial year by 30 million to 700 million, partly as a result of the business rate relief and the increased profitability by moving more sales online. And there's going to be no final dividend this year and the share buyback remains suspended. At the moment, they're trading at a price to earnings of 17.8 compared to the 10 year average of 13.6. And they've got, well, the dividend, there's no final dividend. Sam, next results, what do you think? I thought they were good. As with Morrison's, that P ratio is adjusted. So the unadjusted one's 36. And then if you take out the one-off stuff due to COVID, it then comes down to 17. I thought they were quite good. We obviously knew sales were going to fall because of what's happened during the year. But it's a quality business. I thought the online side of the business was very impressive. So online sales were 2.4 billion compared to retail sales of 955 million. Now I know that the retail sales fell 48%, but online sales are making up the majority of the sales and have done for a couple of years now, which I'm surprised by. So they've they've switched to online incredibly well for a retailer. And I think an adjusted PE ratio of 17, Considering how well they've done, I, I don't think it's outrageous, to be honest. What do you think? I agree. I think I think the numbers are, given everything that's happened, the numbers are impressive. 
And next, I suppose it's been on my radar for a few years, but I always struggle to see it, you know, competing in an online world with retailers like Amazon, but it does seem to continue to do so. And I don't know, again, I don't think I've ever found it as a brand or it's sort of a unique selling point, but it seems to still churn out the numbers. I, so I, I certainly wouldn't bet against it, but I don't know whether I'd be buying shares. I guess the, the type of business it is and the model, it just doesn't really interest me. But I think it's a, a very good business, especially, I know it has had a bad year, but it, it, for a retailer, it's, it's done mm. pretty well. I mean, in terms of its long-term outlook, it looks very good compared to a lot of the other retailers. How do you think it's done that? I don't know, to be honest. I, <laughs> I, don't, I, I genuinely, I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not someone who actually really shops there. So it's, yeah. it's, yeah. it's difficult to say, but people obviously are, I mean, whenever I go in next, it'd be to go and look like the home section, which isn't something that yeah. like, I mean, I'll have a mix around there, maybe, and like, I'll get a lamp or something. But it's not, it's not, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have really thought the stuff that they sell is stuff that necessarily translates to being online, but obviously. No, because you'd think of it almost on the surface as being very similar in terms of what you could buy with a Debenhams, a Dorothy Perkins, a Burton, which have all gone bust. Uh, do you think it could be quick, click and collect? Because they'd still count as an online sale, wouldn't they? Yeah, and I suppose if it's, this, if it's the they, home they, stuff, I could hmm. see that doing well online. Like yeah. not the home stuff, but maybe some of the, the chunkier items. If it's click and collect, maybe that's what's driven it. I don't know. And they, I suppose they probably started from, you know, many years ago with the catalogues. They prob- Possibly they had that very strong catalogue base, which maybe translates into online sales to build from. Oh, yeah. So it says in my article that the infrastructure needed to deliver a postal order isn't that different to what's needed to deliver an online order. They had the logistics were there already. Yeah. They're not as dependent on those high street bricks and mortar stores. And, you know, retail parks, I suppose they probably lend themselves to the online side of the logistics quite well, too. And like you say, click and collect. I like it. I think it seems like quite a good run business, a well run business. Do you think you buy any shares? No. (laughs) okay that's that's more this more just it's still retail for me even if it's doing well it's what did we look at last week we looked at a retailer was doing it was the kingfisher wasn't it it, it'd take a lot from even even the higher quality ones like kingfisher next it'd take a lot for me to invest in a retailer yeah no fair enough it's not a sector that's done as a as a sector that that's performed well in the last 10 years it's i suppose it's been almost been a victim of the technology boom yeah but not next but not next but not next <laughs> their shares are up. i don't know what their shares doing over the last 10 years they're up yeah, over it's, 3x over 10 what about you would you would you ever get it then probably not for the same reasons as you uh, just have a, a, a bit of an aversion to retail i think at the moment a supermarket, uh, I suppose supermarkets would come into that category but it's not i suppose it's not the same t- not the same area of retail no, I, I'd agree with that. Okay, next company, we have Howden's, another yes. retailer. Yeah, so Howden's, who for anyone who doesn't know, are a manufacturer and supplier of fitted kitchens, appliances, and joinery products, have released their full year results. So the business, just for anyone who doesn't know, the business is predominantly UK-based. However, they do also have a smaller presence in France and a very small presence in Belgium. So they've released their full year results and revenue for the group 
was down 2.3% to 1.547 billion. UK revenue was down 2.6% to 1.509 billion. So of that 1.547 billion, UK revenue is 1.509 billion. So they are predominantly UK. Gross profit is down 5.7% to 930 million. The gross profit margin dropping from 62.3% to 60.1%. Operating profit was down 24.7% to 195.7 million with the operating profit margin dropping from 16.4% to 12.6%. Profit before tax was down 28.9% to 185.3 million and the earnings per share were down 28.8% to 24.9 million. The CEO, Andrew Livingston, said, Howden's performed well during 2020. We adapted to COVID-19 trading conditions and progressed our strategic plans for the business. Our performance demonstrates the strength of our trade-only business model and our ability to evolve the business while prioritizing the health and well-being of our staff and customers. Following a large drop in sales in quarter two when the UK entered its first national lockdown, our performance has improved significantly in the second half, with sales up 16% compared to the equivalent period in 2019. As we benefited from pent-up demand and the consumer's desire to invest in their homes, year ended strongly with profit and cash flow ahead of expectations, and we were able to repay the government furlough and other support taken earlier in the year. We are also pleased to be resuming dividend payments. There were a few interesting things from the slides I wanted to go through. The sales, if you look at the two halves in the year, in the first half, sales were down 29% year over year, with the second half then being up 16%, as mentioned by the CEO. It really was a year or two halves for them. They've highlighted that in 2020, the UK openings were fewer than planned, with the opening programme on hold in the first half, as they've prioritised cash flow and found safe ways for depots to trade. They did, however, open 16 depots in the second half, and they've got about 35 openings planned for 2021. They've had 48% more search impressions a month in the year, and site visits are up 53% for the year. And depot leads via the website are up 88% year over year, with brochure requests up 39%. They said that back in 2019, they refocused the international business, and they've taken a city-based approach in France and operations in Germany and the Netherlands were closed. They've renewed their trade-only focus and they opened five new depots in France in 2019. For the 2021, they highlighted they're hoping to open around 35 UK depots and revamp 40 of the existing UK depots, and they've got 11 depot openings planned for France. In terms of financials over the past five years, they're pretty decent. So even after the site drop this year revenue in the past five years is up from 1.307 billion to 547 billion operating profit excluding the drop this year so in four years 2016 to 19 was up from 237 million to 260 million and earnings per share had increased from 29.5p to 35p a share in the four years 2016 to 2019. in terms of the valuation the company's got a market cap of 4.45 billion and trades a PE ratio of 29.94. However, if you use a normalized, so if you take 2019 earnings and do that as a normalized PE, you actually get about 21.3. I think it's quite a high quality business. So I think a normalized PE ratio of 21, it's not cheap, but I don't think it's outrageous. Um, Which would you rather have in, because I suppose Kingfisher is not a dissimilar business. And we discussed that last week. 
how do you think it compares and which would be your pick of the two? I'd probably go for Kingfisher. Why? In I guess there's, there's all the, I mean, the market leader positions, it's got a stronger European footprint and it's a, it is a lot cheaper. I know you'd maybe expect less growth from it, but it's a lot cheaper and it's a business that I don't, I wouldn't really worry about being disrupted by companies like Amazon, for example. I don't expect Howden's to be disrupted either, but I just think, I think Kingfisher was about 13 times earnings. I'd probably, I, I would probably pay th- rather pay 13 times for Kingfisher than um, call it a normalised 21 times for Howden. What about you? I pr- probably for the same reasons, actually. I'd probably go for Kingfisher. What did you think of Howden's but- excluding Kingfisher then? Excluding Kingfisher. For retail, very good. I think probably the only thing that would be holding me back would be the sector and the fact we better companies out there, but, you know, reasonable numbers and not too expensive. It's probably benefited a lot from the lock. Well, it's been a lockdown winner in terms of the retails, uh, retailers and not necessarily DIY, but people making home improvements. Do we have a breakdown of the sort of the on-trade side of the business? It's all it's all on it's all trade it's all only. On trade. Yes, it's all it's on, on trade. trade only. I, I forgot to mention as well. They did highlight their growing social media presence. They've got a follower base of two hundred thirteen thousand by the end of the second half of the year, which was up one hundred nineteen percent. And they say they're reaching over eight million users a month, and their active engagement is up one hundred sixty five percent year over year. I think that's quite interesting because that to me suggests that there's still going to be a lot of pent up demand when things get back to normal because people are obviously sat looking at new kitchens. That they're probably going to yes. go out and buy at some point in the next year or so. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But I, I, I do actually think I wouldn't necessarily like lump it in the category of like just ordinary retail, and it's not, it's not really particularly going to be affected. I don't think by like the death of the high street. I don't think it's really going to be affected by any move to online. It's probably going to do fine as it is because it'll just switch to like a click, a click and collect model. Probably the same as Kingfisher. So it's for me, it wouldn't go in the category of certainly like a next. Okay. Even though Next sure. have responded very well to it, it's I think Next are operating in a more challenging environment going forwards than Howden's and Kingfish. Yeah, yeah, and there are probably fewer competitors in Howden's section. Well, in the Howden end of the market. Yeah, Is yeah, it well, a bit more, best. a bit more yeah. niche. Yeah, yeah, but no, I, I thought it was a, a decent business, just not for me. Yeah. Okay, so. Another, or the next company, I should say, is AG Bar. So AG Bar, we have discussed it on the podcast before. It's the maker of Iron Brew and Tizer, most notably, and they had their full year results. So full year revenue fell by 11.2% to £227 million, and profit before tax and exceptional items fell 12.3% to £32.8 million. After £6.8 million, in net exceptional ex- charges, profit before tax was 26 million, down 30.5%. And group carbonate sales, which count for about 81% of total revenue and 87% of gross profit, fell 6.2% to 184.3 million. Management put this down to COVID disruption and the loss of Rockstar distribution contract from PepsiCo within the UK, which had made up 8% of sales. Iron Brew reported a 9.7% fall in net revenue, despite growth of new sub-brands such as Iron Brew Energy and Iron Brew Extra. 
fizzy Rubicon sales were disproportionately hit by lockdowns, generally relying on the out-of-home sort of on-trade consumption, with revenue in Rubicon falling 8.1%. Stills and water revenue fell the most, 35.9% to 25.7 million, including an 18.2% fall in Rubicon stills. With the closure of the hospitality sector for periods of 2020 meant sales of Strathmore, the still and sparkling water brand, were down between 80 and 90%, and the group recorded an exceptional charges of £6.8 million, and that included an impairment of £10 million in the value of Strathmore brand and assets. However, the group did receive a £7.6 million payment in compensation for the early termination of the Rockstar distribution deal in November from PepsiCo. And free cash flow overall was £43.7 million, which was actually up from £25.4 million, thanks to strong working capital management and reduction in capital expenditure. As a result of these measures and the dividend suspension, AG Bar ended the year with a net cash of £50 million, up from £10.9 million at the end of last year. Price to earnings is 21, with the 10-year average being about 19.7. And we've currently got the dividend suspended. It was yielding about 2.5% prior to this. Thoughts on the highlights from the results, Sam? It was a pretty poor year. I don't think that's really their fault. Most of it actually bouncing back. It's a shame about the Rockstar, which is actually, I think it's gone over to Britvic now. Which is essentially their direct, yeah, their direct competitor in the UK. What do you think of the valuation? I think it's quite expensive for what it is. PE of 21 compared to a 10-year average of 19.7. I don't particularly like their brand portfolio either. I don't think it's that strong. I wouldn't be convinced that it would be as resilient as either Britvix or, I mean, obviously it's not the same. It's sort of alcoholic drinks, still a Diageo. They're just not, they don't have the, the brand loyalty. No, the brands aren't as good and it's actually more expensive than Britvix. Britvix PE yeah. ratio is about 18, 19 compared to 21 for AG Bar. I know AG Bar is smaller, but for me, Britvix is the better business. I'd pick Britvix every time. If you wanted to pay more still for the prospects of future growth, you might be more tempted by a fever tree. Yeah, let's have a look at the financials over the last five years. I don't I don't know what the growth is actually like. It's not. Excluding 2021, if you take the last four years, 2017 to 2020, revenue is basically flat. And earnings per share was actually down slightly in that period. But for three of those four years, it was basically flat. So, I mean, I wouldn't pay more for growth because you're not getting any. So I don't, I just don't, yeah. I don't know why you, why you would buy it instead of Britvic. Yeah. People obviously are. And if you wanted a sort of a more of a consumer goods company, Unilever's not expensive at the moment. Racket's not expensive. Kraft Heinz, there's sort of a turnaround going on there, yeah. which we'll probably talk about next week. All it's, cheaper yeah, than AG it, Bar and all better businesses. Exactly. Exactly. And I think much, much higher quality businesses. Yeah. They've got rid of the big willy, it looks like. Really? I hadn't, I hadn't even not, tried it. No, I, I actually tried to get it. I tried to look in Sainsbury's and couldn't find it. This would explain why I couldn't now. But I had a look on the website and the, the big willy's gone. It may explain the, these results. I mean, it, only, it only launched in like 2018, so it must have just not taken off. They've got another ginger beer brand on their website in the list of brands now. I can't remember what it's called, but not a big willy. It's, it's very disappointing. It is very disappointing. I was looking forward to trying a big willy, but 
Now I never will. <laughs> so I think we can move on from that. I don't think there's much more to, to add with Age Heat Bar. It's not going to make next year's fantasy portfolio, I don't no. think. Perfect cut down. Britvic could. Britvic could. So we've got Jameer, which is a US company, Sam. Do you want to give a bit of a background? Or I say I should say it's US listed. Yeah, so it's it's a German company listed in the US that operates in Africa. So <laughs> what does that make it? I don't know. I guess it's German, isn't it, really? So I guess we've not done a US company. So it's just all European this week. They're basically the Amazon of Africa. That's how they're trying to position themselves. It's been a bit of a bumpy road for them because the problem with Af- Africa is it doesn't have the infrastructure like you'd come to expect in whatever country you're probably listening in, unless you're listening from Africa, which I don't think many people do. But obviously the road system's just not there. Like a lot of places, a lot of places like a lot of properties aren't even registered. Like they don't have postcodes, so it, it does make things like delivery very, very difficult. So it's been a bit of a bumpy road for Jamia, but yeah, on their website they say we're the leading pan-african e-commerce platform our platform consists of our marketplace which connects sellers with consumers our logistics service which enables the shipment and delivery of packages from sellers to consumers and our payment service which facilitates transactions among participants active on our platform in selective markets we are active across 11 countries in africa that together counted more than 600 million people accounted for more than 70 percent of africa's gdp of 2 trillion euros and almost 70% of Africa's internet users. Our pan-African presence provides strong strategic benefits, including macroeconomic diversification and economies of scale. On our marketplace, a large and diverse group of sellers offer a wide range of goods, including smartphones, consumer electronics, fashion and apparel, home and living, consumer packaged goods, beauty and perfumes, etc. We also provide consumers with easy access to a number of services, such as restaurant food delivery, hotel and flight booking, classified advertising, airtime recharge, and instant delivery. In 2019, approximately 90% of the items sold on our marketplace were offered by third-party sellers. Our logistics service, Jamia Logistics, facilitates the delivery of goods in a convenient and reliable way. It consists of a large network of leased warehouses, pickup stations for consumers, and drop-off locations for sellers, and more than 200 local third-party logistics service providers. All logistics providers and assets are seamlessly integrated and managed through our proprietary technology data and processes. Our payment service, Jumia Pay, has been designed to offer a safe, fast, and easy solution to facilitate online payments on our platform with the intention of integrating additional financial services in the future. So just for a bit of background, as I said, Amazon of Africa infrastructure, they've had a lot of problems with that. They started as a first party seller. So they were actually selling the goods directly. And that was incredibly unprofitable. As we actually we actually talked about in the Flosser interview a few weeks ago, that was incredibly unprofitable. And they've now switched to third party selling. So they're trying to move the business towards that. And that that is that is working a lot better. So they've come out with their full year results and Q4 results for 2020. These figures are all going to be in Euros. So recent highlights from Q4 was gross merchandise volume of 231 million euros, a quarter on quarter acceleration of 23%, supported by the Black Friday event in November 2020. Gross merchandise volume was down 21% year over year. Okay, yeah, so it's accelerated 
23% quarter over quarter, but it was down 21% year over year. As the effects of the business mix rebalancing initiated in late 2019 continued playing out during the fourth quarter of 2020. So that's that switch from first party to third party. Gross profit reached 27.9 million euros, a year over year increase of 12%. Sales and advertising was 10.2 million euros, a year over year decrease of 34%. General and administrative costs, excluding share-based compensation, reached 21.8 million, a decrease of 36% year over year. Adjusted EBITDA loss was 28.3 million, decreasing by 47% year over year. Jamia Pay total payment volume reached 59.3 million, increasing by 30% year over year. On-platform total payment volume penetration increased from 15.6% of gross merchandise volume in the fourth quarter of 2019 to 25.7% of gross merchandise volume in the fourth quarter of 2020. They've talked about their Black Friday 2020, and they've highlighted that page views across the platforms reached 1.5 billion, up 34% when compared to the 2019 event. And their video content registered almost 100 million views, three times higher compared to 2019. They said more than 41,500 sellers participated, with the top 20 sellers registering 141% growth in items sold compared to the 2019. Jamia Logistics handled 4.8 million packages during the event, more than double the monthly average for the rest of the year. We also reached a new milestone of delivery speed with 55% of packages reaching consumers in less than 24 hours compared to 44% in 2019. In the Jamia advertising segment, they said 2020 marked the first full year of operations for Jamia advertising, with accelerated momentum in the fourth quarter of 2020, supported by Black Friday. 2020, Jamia advertising ran over 1,000 advertising campaigns on behalf of 370 advertisers, including high-profile partners such as Unilever, Nivea, L'Oreal, Hawaii, Intel, and many more. To support the long-term growth of Jamia advertising and accelerate the shift from analog to digital advertising in Africa, we are establishing strong relationship with brands and advertising agencies. In parallel, we are enhancing our technology stack and have developed a broad range of ad solutions and features for more granular audience targeting based on search terms, price points, geolocation, in addition to the typical user signals of browsing, add to cart data and purchasing history. In the Jamia Logistics section, the pilot 2020 marked the opening of Jamia Logistics services to third parties, whether sellers on the Jamia marketplace or not. Business clients can now leverage the Jamia Logistics platform for their fulfillment needs. During the pilot conducted in 2020, we shipped almost half a million packages on behalf of more than 270 clients, including large corporations such as banks, FMGC companies, mobile network operators, as well as SMEs from a broad range of industries. For the full year, their annual active customers increased from 6.1 to 6.8 million. So that was an 11.9% increase. Number of orders increased 5.1% to 26.5 million. Gross merchandise volume decreased 18.9% to 836.5 million. So revenue for the full year was down 12.9% to 139.6 million. Marketplace revenue was up 19.6% to 93.8 million. And a breakdown of the marketplace revenue, commissions was up 38.5% to 34.6 million. Fulfillment was up 20.7% to 32.4 million. Marketing and advertising was up 26.6% to 7.7 million. Value-added services was down 7% to 19.1 million. First-party revenue was down 45.6% to 44.2 million. Platform revenue was down 13.5% to 138 million. And non-platform revenue was up 108.4% to 1.6 million. 
we've highlighted that first party revenue decreased by 41% in the fourth quarter of 2020 compared to the fourth quarter of 2019. And that was in line with the strategy to undertake fewer sales on a first party basis as we focus on running an asset like marketplace model where third party sellers offer consumers an expanding range of products and services. In terms of the cash position, at the end of December 2020, they had 304 million in cash on the balance sheet, and that includes approximately 203 million of gross proceeds from the offering completed in December 2020. There were a few points from the slides I wanted to talk about. So one was Jamia Pay. They highlighted the year-over-year total payment volume growth of 58%, and Jamia Pay transactions represent 35% of total orders. For monetization, they've highlighted 20% year-over-year marketplace growth and 22% year-over-year gross profit growth. They've highlighted that the average order value decreased by 19% from Q4 2019 to Q4 2020 to 28.7 euros. And they've also highlighted that Jamia Pay total payment volume as a percentage of gross merchandise volume increased by 1.6x. For the Jamia Pay app, they highlighted that they've had over 4 million app downloads in five different countries. They've also highlighted that they're looking to develop Jamia Pay to include payment processing on behalf of third parties. And they're looking to expand into the new markets of Ethiopia, which has a population of 105 million, the Congo with a population of 81 million, and Angola with a population of 30 million. In terms of the valuation, company trades at market cap of $3.748 billion. And that puts it at price sales of 27. However, that includes the first party sales, which they basically, they've said isn't really going to be a part of the business going forward. So that's going to continue to decrease. So if you exclude the first party transactions, it actually gives you a price to sales of 39. My view is this is an interesting company. As Floss has said, if they can crack Africa, obviously a 3.74 billion market cap, it would be, it's going to be a lot higher than that. But I just think, for a price of sales of 39, I'd expect much higher growth rates. I know that the first party transactions are dragging it down, but if you pull that out, you're still looking at a growth rate of about 20% a year, which for me is, is just too low. I'd want to see that growth accelerating, really, if I was going to pay that kind of price to sales ratio. What do you think, John? Well, I was going to ask you a, sort of a follow-up question on that. So you sort of talk about it as Africa. Which countries in particular are the revenues coming from? Is it sort of concentrated with one or two, or is it sort of quite evenly distributed? Oh, so they've broken it out by part of Africa. So oh, yeah. of the 139 million revenue, 63 million comes from West Africa, 48 million from North Africa, and... 27 million from East and South Africa with then 700, a tiny amount, like 728,000 coming from Europe and 207,000 coming from the UAE. So it's okay. oh, interesting. primarily West Africa. Yeah. Okay. Okay. No, I mean, it's incredibly expensive, but I suppose it's what it's pricing in is breaking the whole of Africa and actually becoming the Amazon of a continent. So yeah, it's not one that I would be investing in, but I'll, you know, be excited to follow the journey through watching from sidelines probably yeah if, if it was growing more i would be interested in it but yeah i don't think that first party revenue there's no point in taking it into consideration because that's going to disappear over the next few years 39 price to sales for a company with 20 percent growth probably something like i know it's like a smaller total addressable market but team 17 where it's 42 times earnings for 30 percent growth mm, yeah. It's, yeah, it's yeah it's just it's eye-wateringly expensive 
It's the growth rate's too low. It needs to be growing at least 50% for me to justify that price <laughs> of sales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, you don't own shares in it? Um, I don't know. I followed it pretty much since the IPO. Follow it closely, but yeah. Yeah, so it's a type of... Well, and out of interest, when, when did you say it IPO'd? Uh, April 2019, it IPO'd. Okay. It's had a bumpy ride. It IPO'd at, so it IPO'd at 25. It reached about 40 shortly after the IPO, dropped to two. It's then slowly climbed back up since about April 2020, reaching a high of $61, and it's now at 38. So it's a, it's a bumpy ride. It's a bumpy ride. Okay. So, John, of the six companies we've talked about this week, Morrison's, Team 17, Next, Howden's, AG Bart, and Jamia. If you had to buy one, which one would it be and why? I think I'd probably go for Morrison's this week. I think it's an attractive valuation and it's a high quality business. I think there are probably quite exciting possibilities with the growth of the online division of Morrison's and potential, well, I suppose potential takeover target by Amazon. I'd go for Morrison's as well for similar reasons. It's just a quality business. I did like Team 17. I thought the valuation looks attractive for someone who understands that business better than I do. But yeah, for Morrison's yeah. for me. Yeah, and I think Jamia, that may be the most interesting one to follow, but not one that I'd be uh, buying shares in. No, I, I wouldn't be close to buying shares of those numbers, to be honest. It, yeah. Still got I think a least, yeah. least favourite by some distance would be AG Bar. Oh, I don't know. I, I actually, I'd probably buy AG Bar before I bought Jamia. Uh, oh okay okay uh, i i yeah i pro yeah I, I wouldn't be brave enough for jimmy yeah okay so in, in terms of the uk companies it would yeah, be aging out of those yeah. ones um jimmy yeah I'm, i think of jameer as just separate from uh, all of those really you don't even consider that that's why yeah, do, yeah that's right don't even consider it okay well i think that's it for this week but we'll see you again next time see you next week Thank you for listening to The Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.